Amen. I appreciate that good singing. I appreciate the truth of that song. Amen. I'm thankful we have a Bible. There's some folks around that want you to think we don't have a Bible. And they'll say they'll say things like, well, you know, we had a Bible when we had the originals. But uh, there's a few problems with that. One, there was never a time when all the originals were around. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, what about them originals that uh, Moses threw down and busted? What about them originals that Jehudi cut out with that pen knife in the book of Jeremiah and threw into the fire? What about those originals? You see, you say, well, preacher, but it was just as good as what they had afterwards was a faithful copy. Well, it's good enough for them. Amen. And you say, well, you know, it's them originals. People say sometimes, why, you just worship that old leather and paper. No. Uh, listen, I, I, I can read the Bible on an electronic format. I can read the Word of God in my, in my physical Bible. But I tell you, the folks that say that the Bible can only exist in vellum and animal skins uh, from the first ages, sounds like they're the ones that are worshiping leather and animal skins and things like that. No. Hey, listen, when we say, well, you know, we, we don't really... We've got a Bible, but it contains the words of God, but it's not the Word of God. Or they say it's the Word of God, but they're not all the words of God. What they're really telling you is we don't have a Bible. I believe we have a Bible this morning. I believe we have the Word of God this morning. Uh, it's, it's more than me. It's smarter than me. It's more authoritative than me. I don't have the right to tinker with it. I don't have the right to change it. I don't have the right to make it fit my vernacular or my way of speaking, because it's it's God's Word. It belongs to Him. Amen. And I think we ought to just read it, amen, and believe it and obey it and trust it this morning. Well, turn in that Bible that you've got to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We have for the past few weeks been preaching uh, about these churches in the book of Revelation and the letters that uh, God gave to them. And there is much that we could say about them uh, but we have sought to look at them from a practical perspective. And not because that's the only perspective of them, but because it is so often neglected. Very often when people preach these, they want to talk about the prophetic import and, and meaning of them. And that's good and everything. I'm not against that. There's a place for it. Uh, but oftentimes they miss the fact that God was speaking to literal churches that existed and lived, and, and they had literal people, amen, and, and they had, you say, what other kind are there? Well, I don't know, amen. But they had literal people with literal problems that God was speaking to and God was speaking about. And so we have sought as we have moved through these verses to examine the practical truth that God has given in these letters. And we have really sought to pick up on a theme in each of them. For instance, the church at Ephesus had left their first love. God commands the church at Smyrna to be faithful unto death. Uh, the church at Pergamos was living where Satan dwelleth. The church at Thyatira, their last, was more than their first. The church at Sardis had a name that they lived, but in fact they were dead, spiritually speaking. And the church at Philadelphia, God uh, warned them that they not lose their crown, their rewards that they had laid up in serving God. And I would venture a guess that this morning, probably any student of the Bible could already guess what the theme we find in the church, uh, the letter to the church at Laodicea is. It is probably the most marked feature of the entirety of this passage. Uh, so I want us to begin reading in verse number 3, and you'll pro or excuse me, verse 14, and you'll probably notice it when we come to it. Verse number 14, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the Word of God says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, 
the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for this another day that you brought us faithfully into your house. We understand we're not here by incident, by happenstance, Lord. We're here by providence. You brought us here to this place because you have a truth for us. You have a message for us. I pray that you'd help me to be a a willing and faithful vessel for that truth this morning. Let men not hear me, but hear Christ. Help me to get out of the way. Hide me behind the shadow of thy cross that men might see Jesus and Him alone. And I pray that you'd speak to hearts this morning. Pray that our hearts would be open, that Lord, as you knock upon our heart's door, that we would open unto you and that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. Probably, Lord, there'll be truths that are said today that are uncomfortable to our flesh, that wound our pride. Lord, we know that none of that matters as long as we leave this place having surrendered unto you and having been made more into the image of Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. Lord, we do love you now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice with me verses 15 and 16. We find within this the theme of this little epistle to the church at Laodicea. God says about them, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. God says, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on this thought, neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. When we read of the church at Laodicea, it is not the first time we are acquainted with this little body of believers. Although I'll admit to you, there's not a whole lot that's said about them elsewhere in the Word of God. We do find several references to them in the uh, epistle to the church at Colossae. And that makes sense for Laodicea and Colossae were close to one another. And they probably shared some spiritual lineage as far as the founding of their church. But most of what we know about this church at Laodicea, or the city of Laodicea at least, we go to history and we can learn some things about it. Laodicea, the chief city of Phrygia, was strategically situated in the Lycus Valley, about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And again, as we said last week, that's not PA. Somebody say amen to that. That's, uh, that, that's, that's AM. Amen. That's not PA. That's Philadelphia, Asia Minor. Located at the confluence of three much-traveled highways, the city grew into a highly successful commercial and financial center. It was a city of wealthy bankers and financiers. 
The many millionaires combined to build theaters, a huge stadium, lavish public baths, and fabulous shopping centers. Laodicea was known for its wealth and its manufacture of a special eye salve as well as of a glossy black wool cloth. It also was located near Hierapolis, where there were famous hot springs, and Colossae, which was known for its pure cold water. We have no record of the founding of the church at Laodicea, nor are we told in the Bible that Paul ever visited the city. It's possible that Epaphras, the pastor of the church at Colossae, played an important role in gathering these believers together. We do know from the references to Laodicea in the epistle to the Colossians that Paul was acquainted with the work there and very much interested in it. In fact, the great apostle wrote a letter to the Laodicean assembly and prayed for them as he did for those at Colossae. It's interesting to think about that letter that Paul wrote to them. We do not know the content of it. We do know what was good for Laodicea was good for Colossae. And we know what was good for Colossae was good for Laodicea because Paul exhorts those two churches to pass those letters in betwixt each other. We do not know what was contained in the letter to Laodicea, but we do find that God Himself wrote a letter to it. And He points out basically three problems that existed in this body of believers. We could say it this way. The first problem was they had lost their spiritual vigor. They had grown lukewarm in their devotion to Christ. Uh, The second was they had lost their spiritual values. Uh, The things that were important to them weren't the things that were important to God. Can I say to you this morning, both for the church and for the individual, there are many things that mean a lot to us today that don't mean a lick to God. And there are a lot of things, sad to say, that mean a lot to God that do not mean much to the average church member. And that was part of the problem. They were blinded to their great poverty spiritually speaking. And the other problem was there was a visitor on the outside wanting to get in. They had crowded Christ out of the church and He was seeking entrance, but nobody would open up and let Him in. As we've read through these passages, these letters to these churches, there's two things that we've tried to keep in mind. One is that in each of these letters, the Lord always gives an introduction of Himself. And in these introductions, what you find is just a part of a greater picture that's presented first to us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we're given a detailed uh, description of the Lord Jesus in His glory and His majesty. And in each of these letters, it opens with Him describing some element of that for this local church. And it always seems to be tailored for what they're going through. You say, preacher, what does that mean to you this morning? Well, it tells me this. Hey, listen, He don't ever change who He is. Amen? Let me say that again. He don't ever change who He is. But who He is, is always who I need Him to be. In other words, whatever I'm going through, He's always equipped to speak to me and what I'm dealing with. And then at the close of each of these epistles, there is a promise given to those that overcome the problems in their life and in the church. And each of these presents to us an element of what Christ does for the sinner when He saves them. For instance, the church at Ephesus, uh, the Lord says that He would give them uh, to eat of the tree of life in the garden and that they would know eternal life. Well, that's the first thing God does for a sinner. He saves him from his sins and changes his life. He gives him new life. And so each of these have to be examined with that in mind. Well, what's the first thing we notice when we read this? We notice the introduction of the Lord. What does He say about Himself in verse number 14? Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. Uh, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I jotted it down this way, Brother Ken. He's the past, the present, and the future Lord. 
I like what he says first. We find that he is the amen. I, I said it this way. He's the final word. The word amen is used to affirm a truth. In fact, you're using it this morning. I say something, you believe that it's true, and you respond to that by saying, Amen. It's your way of saying, that's true. There's nothing to be added to it. You know, I never thought about it that way. It could be when you're amen to me, you're trying to get me to hush. Amen. Amen. That was my wife. But it's a way of affirming the truth, the authenticity, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of something that's said. What does this mean here? Well, you know, only here in Revelation 3.14 is the word amen used as one of Christ's Titles. You know why that is? He only among man is the affirmation and the confirmation of the mind of God. He is God's last word. There's no improving upon Him. Amen is stamped on the very image of Christ. You remember the Hebrews or the Colossae writer said this, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You remember in the book of Hebrews, it begins this way by saying that God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto us by the mouths of the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son from heaven. In other words, it's saying God said a lot of things in a lot of ways throughout the years, but He brought it all to a close, all to a consummation, a completion in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you reject Christ, there ain't nowhere for you to go. He is the final word. If we reject Him, God has nothing else to say to us about our spiritual condition. He is what we have to reckon with. He's the final word. Why did that matter to this little church at Laodicea? They wanted to, uh, the Lord wanted them to understand there wasn't no appeals court to go to. God was getting ready to say some hard things to this church, but He wanted them to understand that the things He was saying was final. Any of y'all ever grow up with a daddy whose word was final? My daddy's word was final. It wasn't always right but it was always final. Whatever it was, when Daddy spoke, that was it. That was enough. And we were to hush. Well, when the Lord speaks, that's enough. And He always is, right? So He's the final word. Number two, we see that He's the faithful witness. He calls Himself the faithful and true witness. This means that He will not dilute the truth. He is the true witness, which means He will not distort the truth. He sees through all the sham, all the shallowness, all the outward show of our lives, and He neither dilutes nor distorts what He sees. In other words, He's the final word, but He's a faithful word too. What He says is true. We live in a day where you can't even believe the very eyeballs in your head, where the things that are said always have some spin and some twist. There's always a part of it left out or a part of it that should have been added or something to that effect. But listen, when the Lord speaks, He speaks with authority. And he speaks truly. He's the faithful witness. But then I notice this. He's the former of the world. You say, what do you mean? Well, he said, the Bible says he's the beginning of the creation of God. This phrase does not suggest that Jesus was created and therefore not eternal God, but rather it means that he is the source. He is the origin. He is where creation began. It began through and with him. Listen, I think John said it in a way, or the Holy Ghost did through John, that, that clarifies it very clearly for us in John chapter number 1. You've read this before, but you know how the Gospel of John begins. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And we know who that Word is because down in verse number 14, we're told in John 1.14 that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Well, who's the only begotten of the Father? That's Jesus. But when the Bible uses the 
term Word here in John chapter 1, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it tells us in the beginning was what was the Word. Jesus was there in the beginning. Uh, not He not He showed up, not He was created, not He came into In the beginning was the Word. He was already there in the beginning. Why is that? Because He's God. Because He's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then it says this, all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, now that's not hard to understand. How did God create this world? Did He gather together a bunch of contractors and architects and pull permits? That's not how He did it. Did He gather together a bunch of, uh, of mystical, magical powers, conjurings, or, 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 or uh, incantation? No. How did He do it? He just simply spoke it into existence. God said, let there be. And there was. That was the power of Christ in creation as the Father spoke the power of the Son into creating this world around us. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, it tells us this. He was around before anything. He's been watching the whole time. And He is our Creator. He is, the way the book of Hebrews says it, Him with whom we have to do. You say, preacher, what are you getting at with all this? I'm saying this, we're going to have to deal with Him. Because He's the past, He's the present, and He's the future Lord. We're going to have to reckon with Him one of these days. You can't avoid Him. You're going to have to deal with Him. You're going to have to face Him. When we read through the remainder of this letter, we find that there's basically four parts to it. Verses 15 and 16 show us the cry of disgust. He says they're lukewarm and He'll spew them out. Verses 17 and 18 give us the counsel to the deceived person. A person that's blind and what they need to know. Number 19 is, uh, verse number 19 gives us a little parenthesis here and we find the comfort to the discouraged. I'm glad the Lord comforts us. When He chastens us, He also soothes us and comforts us. And then finally, we'll see the calling at the door. Notice this with me this morning. Number one, we see the cry of disgust. Verse 15. The Lord says this, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, cold, excuse me, or hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Lord, of course, is using figurative language here. But what He's saying is that He had taken their spiritual temperature and it did not read bone cold and it did not read boiling hot. Rather, they were somewhere in the middle. I remember years ago hearing a preacher preach from this very passage. He did something. I, I, I thought of doing it this morning. I thought against it. But I'll tell you what he did. He passed out little slips of paper all throughout the congregation before the service began. And when he got up uh, in the pulpit, he said, I want you to take a pen and I want you from one to ten to rate your spirituality. And as you look through those uh, pages, they, the, those little slips of paper, there were very few ones because it was a Baptist crowd. There were very few ones. And there were even fewer tens. Very few were bold enough to say, hey, I'm the best Christian walking around. Instead, you know where most people were? Four, five, six. They just floated somewhere in the middle. Now let me go ahead and admit to you this morning, hey, I'm probably right there in the middle with you. And I don't want you thinking that I'm standing up here thinking I'm a, a ten and, and you're not. But I'm saying this, we all, if we were to be honest, we'd have to admit there's areas of our life that we could be more on fire for God. We'd all have to admit that we're somewhere in in the middle. And probably if we were to be honest and look back at our life, we'd say there were times that we were more on fire for God than what we are today. Now what happened to us? Well, we just sort of settled in somewhere. One commentator wrote this down. I thought it was interesting. 
It says uh, the second law of thermodynamics requires that a closed system... You say, what is that, preacher? Well, something that's contained, a closed system, eventually moderates so that no more energy is being produced. Unless something is added from the outside, the system decays and dies. Without added fuel, the hot water in the boiler becomes cool. Without electricity, the refrigerant in the freezer becomes warm. The church cannot be a closed system. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. The Laodicean church was self-reliant, self-satisfied, and secure. They proclaimed, we have need of nothing. But all the while, their spiritual power had been decaying. Their material wealth and glowing statistics were but shrouds hiding a rotting corpse. The truth about the church at Laodicea, they weren't the worst church around, but they weren't the best church around either. And here's the problem. Most of us would admit we may not be the best, we may not be the worst, but they were okay with it. It didn't bother them one bit. They were fine running somewhere in the middle of the pack. I read to you when we were in our introduction about the water system around Laodicea. Hierapolis contained uh, famed hot springs where the water would be boiling hot. Have you ever been in a hot spring before? We was out in Wyoming and stopped in Thermopolis and got in a hot spring. Stinks like rotten eggs. Amen. Uh, my wife did. I didn't. I smelled fresh as a rose. But it stinks. But, but naturally the water coming out is like a hundred degrees. It's like a hot tub right there. And, and, but the, the water at Colossae was known for being pure and cold. Now, you know what that meant? That meant by the time the water from Hierapolis and the water from Colossae ran down the hillside and met in Laodicea, it was always sickeningly lukewarm. They would have understood instinctively the meaning of this message, for they as a people had contended with the problem of lukewarm water. You know, we enjoy a beverage generally that is either hot or cold. But one that is lukewarm is flat and stale. That's why the waitress keeps adding hot coffee or, or fresh iced tea to your glass. The, the church at Laodicea had been reduced to room temperature. They were fine with the fact that they weren't going and growing for God. They were fine with the fact that they weren't on fire for the Lord. They were fine with the fact that folks weren't getting saved and revival wasn't happening and hearts weren't being broken for Christ and hearts mended by the gospel. They were okay with all that. You say, preacher, who are you to stand in judgment? Right, listen, I'm not saying that we ain't all more lukewarm than we ought to be. I'm just saying we ought not be okay with it. We ought not be okay with it. It ought to bother us. Hey, we're coming into revival this next week. What are you asking God to do in your heart? What are you asking God to change about you? What are you asking God to reveal to you? Are you okay just being lukewarm somewhere in the middle? They had grown Lukewarm. Lukewarm liquid is a disgusting thing for most people. Some people are weird, drink water at room temperature. I ain't going to call no names, but you know who you are. But their spiritual temperature, it was neither hot nor cold. But then we see a sobering truth here, man. Have you ever thought about this? Listen to the next thing God says. God says, I would thou wert cold or hot. Now stop and think about that. God shows up on the scene and He says, the number one problem with this church is that you're not on fire for me. But he says the number two problem with it is you ain't worse than what you are. What a strange thing for God to say. Why would God say that? I think we get a little insight in the book of John, chapter number 9. Do you remember the story when the Lord Jesus heals the blind man? The Lord heals a man that's been blind from his birth. It's never happened before. 
And uh, they go to the Lord Jesus and they ask the question about this man. says, who hath sinned this man or his parents that he is blind? And Jesus says, neither this man or his parents has sinned, but this is for the glory of God. God is wanting to show you some things through this. Well, the Pharisees get upset about that because their whole religious system based on this idea that a man was basically good and if he just kept being good, he'd be alright with God. But here's a man that was born blind and the Son of God Himself said, did nobody ever sin? He was just born this way because that's how men are born. They're born spiritually blind. This was a threat to their power structure. And so they come to Jesus and they ask Him whether He's blind. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says to him In verse number 39 of John chapter 9, Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not... That they, I'll get it said here in a second. That they which see not might see. And that they which see might be made blind. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were not sensitive to their blindness. Like many others, they would say, we're not blind, we can see, we're not ignorant, we know. And yet for all their boasted light and knowledge, they rejected Christ. Had the Pharisees recognized their own blindness, they would have received Him who is the light of the world, and He would have cleansed them from their sins. But in their refusal to confess their blindness, their sin remained. Thus the Lord is saying to those at Laodicea that if instead of being lukewarm, they were so cold as to feel the bitterness and severity of that coldness, they would flee to the true warmth for refuge. See, if we are really cold and admit to that fact, our confession will lead to our removal of sin. Can I just sum it up in in country boy language? Uh, The problem was, if they had got colder, they would have got in out of cold. But the fact that they was lukewarm made them content to live there. You know the danger in mediocrity is that it's appealing, it's comfortable to us. We rarely move from the status quo. If a man's going and growing for God, if he's living for the Lord, if he's on fire for God, he has nowhere else he needs to go. If a man is stone cold in his spirituality and he, he doesn't walk with God, he doesn't pray to God, and he doesn't speak to God, most of the time it's so evident that he can't avoid that problem. But when we just got a little bit of Christianity in our lives, when we've got a little bit of spirituality in our lives, that satisfies us to just live in that dead, complacent state. It would have been better for the church of Laodicea if they had been cold, because then at least somebody could have come and lit a fire and changed something. But as it was, they said, we're okay. We have need of nothing. We find a sobering truth here, and then we see their sickening face. Look what he says. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, what does this mean? I've heard people try to take this and suggest that that means that a person loses their salvation. Uh, and uh, the truth is, we're all more lukewarm than we ought to be. If, if not being as on fire for God as we could be is the criteria for staying saved, Brother Ken, wouldn't none of us be saved. Wouldn't none of us be saved. Beyond that, I heard one preacher say it this way. I, this is sort of cute, but I think there's truth to it. It says, I ain't in his mouth, I'm in his hand. I'm in his hand. Did you hear me? I ain't in his mouth, I'm in his hand. Amen. But the idea behind this being that they had been a sweet savor, a pleasant taste in the mouth of the Lord, something that was appealing and pleasing to Him. But now He was disgusted by them and He would reject their testimony and their witness 
for him. In other words, the Lord saying, I want to disassociate myself from this church. It turns my stomach to see this lukewarmness. You know, lukewarm liquid is sometimes used as an emetic. You say, what's an emetic? Well, it's something that creates nausea. If a child swallows poison or uh, if someone swallows something that will hurt them, a lot of times they can use lukewarm liquid to try to cleanse their system. If they flush it down uh, into their stomach, their stomach will naturally turn and churn and reject that. And that's what God speaks of. Uh, lukewarm liquid, it's not, it's not merely tasteless. It's positively distasteful. Distasteful to God. In other words, God, he, He's not just indifferent to our lukewarmness. He's disgusted by it. I could preach a whole message and just sit down right here and I'm not going to. The Lord won't permit me to. But suffice it to say, the problem is we're okay with it. But I'll tell you this, He's not. He's not this morning. He's not okay with us running in the middle of the pack and being okay with it. He's not okay with us just being satisfied to just keep floating along. And keep getting by. We've all gotten this thing. I think this is true. It's true for me. Maybe it ain't true for you. But over this past year and this corona mess, everybody shifted into neutral. And there's just this thing of responsibilities were, were let go and people just, you know, it's, well, you're corona, corona, it's corona. Listen, I understand. I understand that things have had to have been done differently. I understand that there may be things we wish we could do that we were not permitted to do. But you understand at some point we're going to have to shift out of neutral, right? You understand at a certain point the excuse goes away. We're going to have to say, alright, it's time to go on and do something for God. I'm just saying this, a lot of folks, we've gotten comfortable with this thing. And I tell you, we may be comfortable with it, but God's not comfortable with it. So we find the cry of disgust here. And then number two, we see the counsel to the deceived. Now if I'm not careful, I'll bog down here. So you help me preach real good so we can get through this next little part. Look at verse number 17. God says of them that they are blind. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. We find that God tells them how to get out of this mess that they're in. And the first thing He speaks of is the blindness that He observed in them. Their condition can be summed up by two phrases. It's this, Thou sayest, and thou knowest not. In other words, he says, there's some things you think are true that are not true. There's some things that you take for granted about yourself. God says the problem is they're not true. Notice number one what they said. They said, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. Can I say that at a very surface level, everything they said was true. They were wealthy people. Now let me say this, God doesn't, God doesn't love a poor man for being poor and God doesn't despise a wealthy man for being wealthy. Your bank account is of no interest to God. But when it comes to a place of idolatry and it becomes something that you look at and say, hey, I'm okay because of what I've got. Can I remind you, there was a man in the land of us named Job that had everything a man could imagine and in the space of about two minutes it all went away. Can I remind you, hey, listen, there was a rich man that laid up for years all of his provisions and all of his grain and he built barns and he, and then they got full and he tore them down and he built bigger barns and one day he sat back and said, take your rest. You've got much goods laid up for many years. And the Lord called him a fool and said, this night is thy soul required of thee. God, God ain't mad at anybody for having money, but you better recognize that that money ain't very meaningful. But it was true. They were. Rich, they were increased with goods. And then listen to what they said. They said, we have need of nothing. Like, like a Baptist church at prayer request time. 
Anybody got any prayer requests? Well, I'd love to be that satisfied. Amen. I got a few things I'm asking God for. But you know, sometimes in our life, we, we grow content and we say, I'm okay. I'm all right. God says, I want to give you revival. You say, I'm good. I'm fine just going, having good singing, having good church to go to. God says, I want to get the sin out of your life. And we say, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm okay. It's, it's not so much that I can't live with it. I, I'll be all right. The Lord says, I want to break chains and lift burdens and give you liberty in your life to go and do great things. And we say, I'm all right, Lord. I'm good. I have need of nothing. That can sound real noble. It can sound like we're being low maintenance. But can I tell you this? God has the means for high maintenance spirituality. We say, preacher, I, I'm just low maintenance. Whatever God wants to do, He can do. You don't mean that. You know how I know that? Because God wants to do more in your life and you ain't letting Him. So it sounds all spiritual to just say, well, you know, preacher, I'm good, whatever God wants. But when God shows up, tries to kick in the door of your heart and do something for the glory of God, and you say, no, thank you, I'm all right. That betrays the true spirit and disposition that you have. Notice what they said, but number two, will not you notice what he saw? He said, you say that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art, this strong language, this is God saying this, don't get mad at me. He says, thou art wretched, thou art miserable, thou art poor, thou art blind, and thou art naked. God says, this is what I see when I look at that mediocre church. Not the best, not the worst. All the bills are being paid. All the missionaries are being took care of. Everything's all right. They say, I have need of nothing. God says, here's what I see. He says, I see that you're wretched. That word's only used one other time in the New Testament. You know when it is? It's when Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul said, our very state of existence is wretchedness. That word miserable is only used one time. And it's when the uh, Apostle Paul writes and he says, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Speaking of a person living with low values and low perspective and not recognizing and living in the spiritual truth of the gospel. In other words, he says, here's the problem. You're living below what God saved you to. A lot of us are living below what God saved us to. We may be fine with it. Most Christians may be fine with it. The church may be fine with it. Our family may be fine with it. That don't mean God's fine with it. And who are we doing this thing for in the first place if we're not doing it for Him? But you know what I notice here most of all? I notice not only what they said and what He saw, but I notice what they didn't say. You know, a true indication of this church's spiritual decay is witnessed by the fact that she speaks of herself and not of Christ. She boasts of her material riches and resources but never utters one word of praise for her Lord. The most startling thing ain't what they're talking about, it's what they're not talking about. The most troubling thing is they're boasting in their wealth and their ability and their talents and their ministries and their skills. Never once do they speak of the glory of the Lord that saved them and loved them and bought them. Can I tell you this? You may look at it and say, well, we're running a pretty good clip. We're, we're, we're doing what God expects of us and we're, we're kind of just going along and we're maintaining a good speed. Can I say this? It don't matter how devoted we get, we have never lived up to the great and glorious gift of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying this. We have never got to a place where what we have done is proportional to what He's done for us. Say, preacher, but I, I, I'm trying to live for God. God bless you. That's good. But that don't mean you can just shift into neutral and quit on God. You know why? Because you ain't never going to repay what He did for us. 
I see the blindness that he observed in them. Number two, I see the bargain that he offered them. He says to them, I counsel thee to buy of me. That's interesting, isn't it? Why does he appeal to them to buy of him? How can wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked people buy anything? Our Lord was using language that made sense to these merchandising-minded men. He would have them turn from the salesman who peddled the wares of this world to the one who said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buying without money and without price is indeed a figure of grace. In other words, when he says, buy of me, he's just speaking to them in language they understand. He said, you think your church is what it ought to be because you've gone down and you've bought the best views and you've bought the best sound system and you've bought the best buses and you've bought all these things, but you don't recognize that what you need, you can't buy at that market down there. You've got to come to heaven. You've got to come to God. You've got to come to the prayer closet. You've got to let the Lord do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You're not asking him to earn anything. But he's saying, you gotta to come to me instead of going to them. And what does he tell them they need? Boy, we could, we could, we could, we could sit down and park and I won't. But notice number one, they needed spiritual values. He said, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And he's not talking about physical, material, or monetary gold. But you remember in the book of 1 Peter, the Bible talks about that the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold, uh, though it's uh, tried with fire, shall be found under the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ at His appearing. When it talks about gold here, it's talking about the richness of our walk with God. It's talking about faith in the Lord. He's saying what you need is you need a closer walk with me. What you need is not more ministries. What you need is not more means. What you need is not more money. What you need is me and me alone. He talks about their need for spiritual values. Number two, their need for spiritual virtue. He says, white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the white linen, fine and white linen, Brother Ken, is the righteousness of the saints. Where does that righteousness come from? Well, Paul said about the Jews that they, uh, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, had gone about to establish their own righteousness. Isn't that right, Brother Charles? In other words, the problem was not that they were uh, unrighteous people in their conduct, but rather that they had dismissed the righteousness that God had provided for them through Christ and sought to have their own righteousness. You know what we call that? We call that self-righteousness. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you need to quit looking to yourself and you need to start looking to me and you need to start recognizing that my righteousness alone is the only thing of any esteem or value in the eyes of God. They thought they was good because it's better than the guy next to him. He says that's not what makes a man good. It's not what makes him righteous. What makes him righteous is the righteousness of Christ. And then notice they need a spiritual vision. He says, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Probably every single medicine cabinet of every member of the church at Laodicea had a little bit of eye salve. That's what that place was known for is producing this fine and valuable and powerful eye salve. But he says, you know, you can't go down there and get what you need. Uh, you've got to get it from me. I remember one time we had a little fellowship meeting here at church with a bunch of preachers and, and uh, we, we was singing, man, it was getting good and people sh- shouting and rejoicing and everything. I made this statement to them guys. I said, you know, sometimes preachers, they come to these fellowships and they're looking for a secret sauce. They're looking for something that's going to fix their ministry. They're looking for something that's going to be the, the key that's going to unlock it. I used to be like that. I remember being a young pastor and I used to talk to every pastor, every evangelist that was a pastor that we'd have come through here, all my pastor friends that I thought were successful that were doing well. And I remember asking each and every one of them, I'd say, you know, when did you really see your church grow? 
What changes did you make? What ministries did you start? You know, every one of them, every one of them, the king gave me the same answer. They, every one of them said, you know, I don't remember when it happened, but I know it didn't happen overnight. And every one of them said, this is what I did, Brother Toby. I just stayed faithful to God. We just kept plugging away, just kept being faithful to God, just kept pursuing God, just kept trying to go after God. Sometimes we think we can go down and get that special sauce, get that secret. It's going to unlock everything. Give us new vision. Give us new minds. Give us new eyes. Make everything plain for us. But you know, the only place that spiritual vision comes from is from heaven. only comes from the Word of God. You want to know what's really going on? Don't open the newspaper. Open your Bible. You want to know what's really going on? Turn off Newsmax and open your Bible. It's going to tell you the truth. Boy, I felt like y'all bowed up on me when I said that. Don't mess with that Newsmax. People get all upset. They're lying to you just like Fox and CNN and everybody else is. I hate to break it to you. They're all lying to you. Don't matter who it is. They're all lying to you. But you know, there's a place where there's a faithful and true witness who will never lie to you. You want your eyes open, get in this book. So he counsels them to buy some things of them. And then we notice a little note. It's almost just added in here. Like the, like the notes your mama used to put in your school lunch. Just a little something in here for you to hear that will give you some comfort. We see the comfort to the discouraged. Verse 19. We see that he says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. The Lord just pauses for a moment. He says, Now children, I ain't doing this because I hate you. I ain't saying this to you because I'm mad at you. I ain't saying this to you because I'm trying to hurt your feelings. He says, I'm saying this because I love you. Notice the affection of the rebuke. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. You know, this is what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 12, 6 says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Every, every Sunday night, Lord of the Flies happens over in the life center. Every Sunday night. We, we, we get all the kids over there and everything and, and, um, and, and I, I know sometimes they get wild occasionally. I know sometimes they get wild. I know sometimes they fight and they fuss and everything. You say, preacher, why do you tolerate that? Well, listen, when you was growing up, you had this place you could go and do all that. You know what it was called? Outside. But you know, these kiddos can't do that, right? And you, and, and you had friends you ran with. You know who they, you know who they was as a neighborhood gang, right? Is the gang with your bikes, with, with baseball cards. And you know what these kids don't have? They don't have a gang to run with. And so they come in here on Sunday nights and a lot of them say all the time they get spent with their friends and some of them with their family. So yeah, I know they get a little wild sometimes. You were a little wild too. You'll survive it, I promise. I'm not trying to be ugly. I, I promise you. I'm, I'm just saying they're kids. Kids gonna be kids sometimes. But sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll turn into Lord of the Flies over there. They'll be, and every parent does the same thing every time. Some kid will squall. Wah! We can tell. And every parent does this like a prairie dog. They all go. And then all but one of them will go. You know what that means? Not my child. <laughs> That's what that means. They'll look up and they'll go, oh, that ain't my child. And they'll look away. You know why? Because they know if it's their child, there's going to have to be a reckoning. They're going to get up. They're going to go over there. And let me say, parents, if it's your child, you ought to get up. You ought to go over there. You ought to deal with it. And they're going to get up. They're going to go over there. And they're going to rebuke. And they're going to chase them. But you know why they turn away? If it ain't there, because they don't rebuke and chase a kid that ain't theirs. They go and do that, not because it's what they want to do, but because they love that child. And because that's what they have to do. 
It's their responsibility. The Lord says, hey, I ain't doing this because I hate you. I'm doing this because I love you. I've come over to rebuke and to chasten you, not because I'm not interested in you, but because I'm deeply interested. The Lord ain't dealing with you this morning because He hates you. He deals with you because He loves you. He ain't dealing with you because He's done with you. He's dealing with you because He ain't done with you. And we see that in the next phrase. Notice the aim of the rebuke. He says, be zealous therefore and repent. In other words, get it right. The Hebrews writer said it this way. He said, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight. I think, I think he must have saw me got whipped growing up. Amen. Hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed. God's dealing with you because He's got a plan for you. Not because He's done with you. Not because He's mad at you. But because He has a plan for you. And then finally notice with me. I'm going to say a quick word about it and I'll be done. Notice the calling at the door, verse 20. This is a famous passage of Scripture. There's paintings that are painted uh, to depict this. And we'll say a word about one of them here in a moment. But notice what the Lord says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, we a lot of times, and I have before, I've used this message to make a gospel appeal. And that's okay. There ain't nothing wrong with that. I think it's perfectly appropriate to say God's knocking at the, the heart's door of the sinner and wants to come in and, and make him a new creature. I believe that this morning, don't you? But that's not really the context of what's being spoken of here. It's not talking about the lost sinner. Rather, it's talking about the lukewarm church. And the Lord says, you know, I'm here on the outside and I'm knocking, trying to get in and trying to change this church. Notice here that His position is important. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He ain't in there anymore. I, I know that the Bible talks about him being in the midst of the seven candles, and I'm glad he is. I'm glad he's in the midst of the body of believers, but that doesn't mean that he's always welcome. There's some folks, I'll tell you why they ain't going to have revivals, because it'd tear places all to pieces. It'd tear up the leadership. It'd tear up the deacons. It'd tear up the treasurers. It'd tear up the Sunday school teachers. It'd come in and it'd tear things up for the kin from the floor to the ceiling. People would have to get right. They'd have to repent. They'd have to resign. They'd have to change things. And there's a lot of them just say it just ain't worth the trouble anymore. They don't. He's knocking, and they know he is. They can hear. They don't want to let him in because it's going to it's going to upset somebody. He says, "Here I am on the outside." Can I can I point? So I don't know if you noticed this. I didn't until I was reading it more carefully. But did you notice the introductory words of this letter? You know how the the letter begins to the church at, at Ephesus. It, it, it says it, at, with the church. At Ephesus, it says, unto the church at Ephesus. That's how it begins. And, and at Smyrna, it's unto the church in Smyrna. At Pergamos, it's unto the church in Pergamos. Thyatira, it's unto the church in Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia, they're all the same except Laodicea. Did you notice how it says it? Look back with me, verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. You know, it's almost as if to say that the church at Laodicea wasn't his. It was theirs. It was the church of the Laodiceans. Not the church of the living Christ. Not the church that belongs to God. It didn't belong to God no more. If it did, He would have had a key to it. But He's been pushed out because it ain't about Him anymore. It's, it's, it's an entity in and of itself. Can I say I'm sick of churches being institutions? A church ain't an institution if it's a real Bible church. If it's a Bible church, it's an organism. It ain't an institution. It ain't about my legacy. It ain't about your legacy. It ain't about my preferences or your preferences. It, it, it ain't, it ain't a, a, a monument or a museum or a mausoleum to any man's testimony. It ought to be about Jesus Christ. 
and Him alone. It ain't about me. It ain't about you. It ain't no institution. No, friend, it's an organism. The problem at Laodicea, it had become an entity in and of itself. Now the Lord stands before this church indignantly yet lovingly to present the challenge of His person and His presence. He said, I'm just knocking and I just want to be in, but they won't let Him in. Notice not only His position is important, but notice His promise to the individual. Now somebody's going to say, I was talking about this in Sunday school this morning, there is a nasty brand of fatalism that has infected the study of prophecy. And people sometimes have this idea. You say, preacher, do you believe we're a Laodicean age? Yeah, I do. I look around, I think the church is real Laodicean. You say, but preacher, what does that mean about this or that? Listen, I'm saying when I look at the church today, it looks like this church. It looks like this church. Do you know sometimes people look at it and they say, well, it's Laodicean, so we just need to buckle down and hold on and not do anything until He comes. You ain't going to find that anywhere in the Bible. This attitude of, of fatalism of, well, you know, we're just on this prophecy train. You know how I heard a preacher say it the other way? He said, listen, we are not victims of prophecy. We are victors in prophecy. Our attitude ought not be, well, you know, we're just in these last days, Brother Ken, can't, can't have revival anymore. You won't find that anywhere in your Bible. I know what direction the world's going, but that don't mean we have to go with them. We see this church was going a certain direction. But notice God gives a promise. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man, he didn't say if any ministry, he didn't say if any body, he didn't say if any committee, he said, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I, I hate, I, this is going to mess you up. All right. And I hate to tell you this, but it's Bible. It don't matter how bad things are. That ain't no excuse for you to not live for Jesus Christ. I know, listen, I know that ain't how the TV preachers are talking about it. I understand that ain't how the Facebook prophets are talking about it. But it's how your Bible is talking about it. Say, but preacher, the church is just in such a mess. I don't mean your life has to be. The Lord says, I'm, I'm knocking and if you'll open, if any man will open, you know it only takes one to open the door. I say it every week when Joanne comes through the door. I say, who opened the door for that woman? Somebody, Somebody let her in. Everybody on board, but one person gets weak need and opens the door and lets her in. Only takes one to open the door. You ever thought about that in a local church? It only takes one to open the door. Preacher, I want us to have revival. Then be the one that opens the door. Preacher, I, I want God to move. Then be the one that opens the door. Open the door for it. It can start with you. They say the great Welsh revival began with a little 12-year-old girl that get along with God and pray every day. Be the one that opens the door. And see God sweep in. But you know, even if God doesn't wrought a, a, a big work within a body, He will in the individual. But notice there's some conditions to this promise. Number one, they have to give attention. He says, if any man hear my voice, you've got to acknowledge that He's speaking. How does He speak? He speaks through His Word. You've got to listen to His voice. There's people that they want, they want revivals through all sorts of means. But can I tell you where revival comes from in the local church? It comes from the Word of God. That's where it comes from. I love good singing, man. Hey, listen, we're getting ready to have some folks in here that can sing the paint off the walls. I hope that's a compliment. I know that might have not been. I meant it as a compliment. I've heard some singing that would strip the paint off the walls too, but I meant it as a compliment. But that ain't what's going to bring revival. I love testimonies, man. I enjoy them. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but that ain't what's going to, you know what's going to bring it? The Word of God. And you know, in your life, what's going to bring revival is the truth of the Word of God. There's people that want that, that claim they want revival that never go to the place where revival is. 
They, they, go, they, they, go, they go to the praise radio station when they want revival. They go to the southern gospel station when they want revival. Uh, they go to the TV preacher when they want revival. Uh, they go to the devotional book when they want revival. That's not where it comes from. It comes from this book right here. You gotta go to where revival comes from. You gotta hear his voice. So we have to give attention. Number two, we have to give access. He says, I stand at the door and knock. I said, preacher, isn't that interesting? You know, we, we find in John chapter number 20, he went through a door that was locked without knocking. He could just come in, but he don't. You know why? He wants the door open for him. He wants the door open for him. You know, many of you have doubtless seen the famous painting of Christ standing outside of a closed door, knocking and seeking. You ever seen that painting before? A lot of people probably have. It was painted by a name named Holman Hunt. You know, one day, an artist friend was looking at Hunt's picture and said to him, haven't you made a mistake? Mr. Hunt said, what do you mean? He said, well, you painted the door, but there's no latch on it. Surely you should have known better. And to this, Mr. Hunt replied, said, no, I've not made a mistake. The latch is on the inside. You and I control the latch. If Christ is going to come in, we have to open the door. He ain't going to kick down your door. There's some people, that's how they want God to deal with them. I guess because they like the attention of it. It makes them feel like God really loves them. God loves you whether He, whether He makes a big deal out of, out of your life or whatever, or whether He don't, He still loves you. But can I tell you this? He ain't going to kick down the door. You're going to have to open it for Him. We've got to give access. And you know what we see? We see the content of His promise. I could park here and I won't, but He says I will come into Him. That's His presence. Right? I will sup with him. That's his provision. Right? And he with me. That's his power. Right? In other words, he says this, you'll have, you'll have a life that is meaningful and powerful and live for the glory of God. In other words, he wants in. The question is just whether we'll let him in. Notice this last verse. And I, this ain't even a point. I'm not even going to preach it. I just want to notice it. Look at verse 21 with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and, and sat down with my Father in His throne. You know, as we said, each of these closing promises to the overcomers, they present one element of what God does for the sinner when He saves him. You say, Preacher, what does this have to do with what? Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 2? It's talking about how wicked we are, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But then listen to what God did for the sinner. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy... For His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. In other words, one of the things that God does for the sinner is He elevates him from that lowly state and identifies Himself with him. He says, this is my child. This is my servant. This is my son. We're identified with Christ Jesus and we share in His power and authority and richness and in His glory. What does that mean when we read it here? Well, I, I, I just jotted this down. I thought this might be a good way to look at it. If we'll put Him on our throne, if we'll put Him on our throne, I said, I said our throne this one. If we'll put Him on our throne, then He'll put us in His throne. In other words, if we'll make a big deal out of Him, He'll make a big deal out of us. If we'll let Him have control of our life, He'll take control of our life. And He'll use it for His glory and honor. And He'll make our life count for something that we could have never made it count for in and of ourselves. I wonder where we'd be this morning. Are we hot? Are we cold? Probably not. Probably most of us, if we're to be real honest, would have to say we're lukewarm. 
Say, preacher, uh, you beat up on me this morning. I'm lukewarm. I'm, I'm awful. I'm wretched. I'm poor. I'm miserable. I'm blind. I'm naked. Yeah, that's, that's all true. But can I ask you this? Are you okay with it? We're all there to some degree. The question is not, are we lukewarm? The question is, are we okay with it? If you're not, why don't you come down here and kneel before Him? Why don't you go to Him? He's the only one. Open the door of your heart. Let Him in. Commune with Him. Talk to Him about it. Ask His forgiveness. Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to give you a revival in your heart and your life. And you'll find, you know what? He'll come in and He'll sup with you and you with Him if you'll just open the door. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, I, you don't have to wait for the first note to be played or, or an amen to be said. You can come even right now. If God's spoken to your heart, you can come right now in this moment and you can speak to Him. Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that your people would be obedient to you and get help from you. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed.